Father, please help us as we come to your word right now. Please help us. God, pull us out of our own self-worship or selfish thoughts, God. And I pray that you would bring us before your throne right now to hear a word from your throne, God. Draw us in, God. You said, Lord, that if we drew near to you, and that's what we want to do this morning. We want to draw near to you, God. We want to meet with you, God. And even now, through the preaching of your word, God, we want to meet with you. I pray, God, that you would be faithful to your promise. And, God, that you would draw near to us now. Love you, Lord. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I have a few things I want to say to us before we move into Psalm 114. I love teaching the Word to you guys, by the way. I know sometimes people think of preaching God's Word as if it's just an event, but like I'm looking at faces of people. I know a lot of you, I don't, I don't, some of you I don't know, and I'm glad you're here too. But seeing so many faces that I love, you get to pre- I get to preach God's Word to people that I love and care for. So it's a, it's a sweet thing in my soul. <clears throat> in light of everything that we've been going through as a church over the last four weeks, we, we've looked into... A lot of things about the church. And I want us to remember. This is what I believe God's put in my heart. I want us to remember that we need God. We need God. In light of everything we've been talking about, we need God. We've been studying ecclesiology, in a sense, as a study of the church. We've been studying structures and membership and church covenants. And all these things are important. But if we have all these things in order, does that mean we're okay? Does that mean we're fine? Does that mean everything's going to be all right? And I say no, I say we need God. We need God's presence in our midst. We need God to be among us. Great ecclesiology without his presence misses the point. Misses the point. We need him to come. We need God to move in our hearts that we might be what we've been asking for. That church in Acts 2 and that church in Acts 4. We need God to move upon us. And so... A few, uh, I guess a couple weeks ago, Dustin and I, was before I taught last week about us covenanting, to, covenanting together as a church, and me and Dustin had a conversation, and I said, man, before we go into, the, into Colossians together, I, and, he, and it ended up, me and him were both thinking the same thing on the same page here, I feel like we need to talk about, you got all these structures that are in place, all these kind of things, but if we don't have God, we have nothing. And it was just sweet how the Lord, I felt like, united our hearts together on that, and so... I want to bring us to that, okay? I want to encourage us to beware of something. There's a tendency for us to learn some new truth or some new truths that we get. And we think, and and as soon as we learn those truths, we think, that's it. That's it right there. That's how we're going to be a healthy church. We've got that truth, man. That's it. That's how we're going to be a fruitful church for His glory. When the reality is, is we need God. We need God. A reality check is this. That God throughout history has moved upon bad ecclesiology again and again. And at the same time, there's good theology and, and good ecclesiology among churches and they're dead as a hammer. And I don't know about you, but I don't want anything to do with that. Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Proverbs 21.31 says, the house... The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is from the Lord. So this is what we've been doing. We've been preparing for the day of battle. We've been setting things in order for the last few weeks, the last four weeks, talking about these things about the church. But I'm telling you, deliverance comes from God. It's from Him, from His presence. I'm afraid that many churches today, that if, if in the midst of their church, if the presence of God pulled out, If the Spirit of God removed Himself, I'm afraid that the church would keep functioning just as normal without it. So what about us? Have we set ourselves up that way? I hope not. An illustration that I think is good is this. If you think about the Old Testament, you got the building, the construction of the temple. So in Exodus 40, you got the construction of the tabernacle. And and in 1 and 2 Chronicles, you see the... Excuse me, 2 Chronicles, you see the 
construction of the temple there. And for about four or five chapters, you see just these details about constructing this temple or constructing this tabernacle, which is meant to be a dwelling place of God. And all these, these details that you read in that are even hard to read at times. You've got those details there. Now, what happens at the very end? In Exodus chapter 40, it says, And the cloud came upon that place, and the glory of God filled the temple. And in both places you see that, that the construction of the temple happens and all the detail. And then the glory of the almighty God, the presence of God fills that place. Temple construction is important, but if God doesn't fill it with his presence, all we have is an empty structure. Do you feel warned by that? I want to ask everybody here, do you feel warned by that with our church that all our details and all our temple construction that we've been doing over the last few weeks, that if God doesn't come, it means nothing. You know, I, I was thinking about this recently. We need, we need to feel this in our bones when we pray. That literally God Almighty and His presence could accomplish more in a moment. He could, he could accomplish more in one meeting among us than we could do in a lifetime of labor. And because of these things, I want you to turn to Psalm 114. Psalm 114. Let's read that together. So please get your eyes on it. Psalm 114. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from people of strange language... Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled, Jordan turned back, the mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back, O mountains, that you skip like rams, O hills like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. Who turns the rock into a pool of water and flint into a spring of water. Now this is for, for the most part an unknown psalm and yet an amazing psalm. Here's some amazing things about this psalm. Number one, we see creation personified right here. Literally, he's saying to the sea, sea, why did you run? Hey, Jordan River, why did you pull back? Mountains, why do you skip like calves? So you see creation personified. Verse, in verse 5 and 6 right here, you see Israel actually trash-talking creation. What ails you, O.C., that you run? What's up, mountains, that you quake? Number three, this is a militant song. A very militant, uh, militant feeling to this psalm. You see the people of God pressing forward. Nothing can stop them. That's the idea. Behind this psalm, it's a small psalm, but it has a massive scope. There's at least five references to Old Testament stories that are found in this psalm. In the first verse, we see the, a reference to God pulling his people out of Egypt through the ten plagues and the like. In verse two, you see, you see this, uh, verse three, you see the sea spoken about. Talk, it's speaking about when God parted the Red Sea to, to get his people through on dry land. And then it says the Jordan as if that story when God pushed the Jordan back and his people crossed over into the promised land. And then you also see verse 8, for example, it speaks about God turning the rocks into a pool of water. It's when God brought water out of a rock. You see several Old Testament stories being referenced. So it's a small song, but it has a massive scope. But the most important thing, I want you to see this. <clears throat> The most important thing about this psalm is its main point. And here it is. This psalm is about the people of God that need and have the presence of God. The people of God that need and have the presence of God, which is perfect for us as a church. Because as a church, the people of God, Grace Community Church, we need the presence of God above all else. Ultimately, you think about everything we've been talking about. We need His presence. We need God to be among us. Above everything else. You've often heard me say something like this. 
Uh, if we have the presence of God, we've got it all. We've got it all. Another way you can say it is like this. We have, if we have everything, everything, everything in order, everything in line, but we have not God, we have nothing of value. Nothing. And I need you to think like that. As we think about our church putting these things in order. We can have all these things in order, but if we have not God, we have nothing of value. We just have a religious structure. So here's a quick overview of this psalm. You can break it up into four sections. Okay, let me just say this quickly. Verse, in verse 1 and 2, we see a people pulled out of bondage in Egypt and being taken into the promised land. That's verse 1 and 2. Verse 3 and 4, we see nothing can stand in their way. Not the sea, not the Jordan, not mountains and hills. Nothing can stand in these people's way as God pulls them out of Egypt and brings them into the promised land. Verse 5 and 6, we see the big question. Why are these people so powerful? What ails you, O sea, that you flee? Why are these people so powerful? And then verse 7 and 8, we get the answer. And the answer is the presence of God among his people. And the presence of God. <clears throat> so let's start with the first verse. I'm going to read it again. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange language. So what we get here is a time reference. When the people of God, when Israel, Israel went out from Egypt. We have a time reference here. God's people have been in Egypt in bondage and slavery for 400 years. They've been in cruel bondage and now God is going to deliver his people as we read about in the Exodus. God shows up in power and he frees them. Do you remember that? Our family's reading through that right now. The ten plagues and all the ways that God showed his glory and freed his people through those plagues to get them out of slavery in Egypt. We don't have time to go back and read all of that right now, but I do want to show you a summary statement. Hold your place and go to Psalm 78. Listen to this summary statement of God freeing his people. Psalm 78, I'm going to start in verse 42, go to about 52. Look at it. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. When he performed his signs in Egypt, his marvels in the fields of Zoan, he turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to the thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like a sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. Glory to God. Look at what he can do. Look at his power as he delivers his people. And at the same time, let me say this. We should feel warned because how did that just start? Verse 42, they did not remember his power. They did not remember his power. And that's just said a warning in our souls that we can see these powerful things about God. Maybe God has shown you something about his, his self, his glory, he's revealed his presence to you. And yet you've forgotten that should warn us that's a possibility that that can happen. So what we see in Psalm 114 verse 1 is God has freed his people from bondage and he's moving them toward the promised land, which is to come. This is obviously a picture, uh, an obvious picture that we can take of the church of Jesus Christ. And even of, even of us as the church of Jesus Christ. Think about it. We too have been freed from bondage. And we are headed to that promised land to forever be with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. I want to read verse 14 and 15 to you. Listen to this. 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, and that's speaking about Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things, meaning Jesus, the creator of the universe, took on flesh and blood. He became a man. Why? That through death, Jesus, the Son of God, becomes a man so that He can die. Because God can't die. But He becomes a man so that He can die. Why do you want to die, Jesus? That through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Did you hear that? All of us in bondage, every single one of us, sin against our God, deserving of His punishment, in bondage, in slavery. The Savior comes to rescue. He takes our shackles off of us and puts the shackles onto Himself. He takes our slavery, takes our punishment, takes our death, and frees us from bondage. And sets us on a path to the promised land where we can forever be with Him. This is a sweet picture of us. He came to set us free. Jesus came to set us free from the bondage of sin. From the bondage of Satan. From the bondage of eternal hell. And having been set free. We are now on this wilderness journey of life. And looking forward to that day. Where we enter into the promised land. And we get to be with our Savior. Verse 2. Judah became his sanctuary, Israel, his dominion. What we see here in verse 2 is a people that not only have been freed from bondage, but a people that are not forsaken, a people that are not forgotten. It says here they become, they imagine them coming out of Egypt and they become what, what is his sanctuary. They become his, his dominion. I love this. God does not only, he, he frees his people, but then he never forgets his people. I love this about him. He brought these people out of Egypt to be his sanctuary. This is a place, a sanctuary is a place uniquely set apart, set aside for the presence of God. His dominion is his, his presence in our lives as king. He is the king. He has domain, dominion over our domain. God did not bring them out of Egypt and then leave them. He didn't say... Okay, I brought you out of Egypt now. Bye-bye. I'll see you in the promised land. Because if he had done that, guess what? They'd have never made it. Their sin, their weakness, their fear would have led them right back into their bondage. They never would have made it to the promised land had he not stuck with them and, become, and made them his sanctuary. Well, I'm going to dwell among these people. I'm going to be with these people. And therefore, they can actually make it. To the promised land. And even so, we as the church have become, the church of Jesus Christ, have become His sanctuary. We've become His dominion. We're not only freed from our sins, but we are kept by the power of God. Do you realize that? You're not just freed from your sin. You are kept, kept by the power of God until we enter in to that final place. Think about it. He rips us out of hell and then He doesn't just kneel down and point us to heaven. He rips us out of hell, picks us up, and carries us there. Praise the living God. Jesus not only dies for our sin to free us from bondage, but He rises from the grave to be our great high priest. And as our great high priest, He intercedes for us continually. Throughout this wilderness journey, you imagine Jesus Christ continually making intercession for us that we might be saved to the very end, to the uttermost, that we might enter in to that promised land. Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Do you, do you know that about Him? Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. He doesn't leave you. He will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So aren't you glad about that? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't free you from your sins, rip you out of hell, free you from bondage, and then say, Bye-bye, I'll see you in heaven. 
Because then we never make it. Our sin and our weakness would make us go right back into our rebellion. And in a moment we can drop into hell. But He holds us. He carries us. And to the very end, He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. I want you to think about God. The Scripture says that God upholds all things by the word of His power. you realize what that means? That means if God removes Himself from the equation in a moment, everything in the universe disintegrates. It's gone. Our God upholds all things by the word of His power. And that's the same thing for me and you. That in a moment, He pulls back, He gets Himself out of the equation, we drop into hell and we're done. But He says, he, we're kept by the power of God. He holds us to the end. We've become His sanctuary. He freed us from bondage and made us His sanctuary and His dominion. Anybody glad about that? Verse 3 and 4. What I want you to see here is these people coming out of Egypt, freed from bondage, headed to the promised land on this wilderness journey. This is a people of power. Look at verse 3 and 4. The sea looked and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams. The hills like lambs. So poetic language is being used here to, to, to teach us something about these people that have been delivered out of bondage and are, and are being brought into the promised land. So, so what, what is being communicated here by saying here come these people and the sea's running and the Jordan's running back and the mountains are trembling. What is being communicated to us in that? That this people came out as a people of power, a people of force, a people of authority. That these people came out with miracles and wonders and glory. That nothing can stop these people. Nothing can stop them. The sea cannot stop them. The Jordan cannot stop them. Enemies can't stop them. Nothing can stop these people. They were forced to be reckoned with. And I want you to apply that to the church. The redeemed church of Jesus Christ is spoken of in similar ways. Do you realize that? The redeemed church of Jesus Christ is spoken of in similar ways. Let me give you some examples. Matthew 16, verse 8, Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew 24, verse 14, the God, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached, will be, by the way, will be preached in all the world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. So here's this church with power. The, the gospel will be preached by this church to the ends of the earth and nothing will stand against it. Luke 24 verse 49 calls us clothed with power from on high. Acts 1.8, it says you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Do you feel the same kind of language about this power in these people, in the church, in us? The church is not a weakling that's just hanging on till we get to heaven. Hope everything goes fine. The church in the book of Acts is possessed with power to push back the sea of sin, to route the rivers of Satan's temptations, and to pull down mountains of obstacles that stand in our way. It's a people of power. There's at least two Old Testament stories and really, I believe three, but two that are very clear that are referenced in verse three and verse four. When it says the sea right there, that's talking about the Red Sea. The sea looked and fled when the people of God were being pulled out of Egypt and God pulled back. He parted the Red Sea and they crossed over on dry land. And then the next one says, and the Jordan turned back, obviously talking about the River Jordan. And then when they crossed into the promised land it was stopped by God. So I want you to think for a minute. You got the bookends of the wilderness journey of the people of Israel. When they're delivered out of bondage and brought into the promised land. And here you've got the sea that runs and flees. And you've got the Jordan that pushes back. I want us to go back and look at those stories for just a second. Go to Exodus 13. And here's what I want us to do. Or Exodus 14, excuse me. Here's what I want us to do. It's a familiar story. 
Don't let familiarity with this story keep you from seeing the glory of God in it. Here's a question I want us to ask. These people come out with power. The sea runs for them. All creation bowing down. And so here's these people with power. What makes them so powerful? So look at Exodus 14 with me about the parting of the Red Sea. And you ask that question. What makes these people so powerful? What is it? Exodus 14. I actually want to back up a couple verses. Exodus 13 verse 21. Look at it. Our first clue of what made these people so powerful. And the Lord went before them. Was the presence of God with these people? Absolutely. They were a sanctuary. The Lord went before them. Go to chapter 14 verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back. Excuse me, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Baharoth between Migdal and the sea. And what you see as you keep reading is he tells them where to go in these first few verses. And not only where to go, he tells them why they need to go there. Verse 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So here you got these people and, and Pharaoh rises up against them and he begins to chase them. And they've got their backs against the Red Sea because God let them know. Verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us up out of Egypt? Is it not this? It is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Listen to me. When you think about, when you think about that question, why were these people, Psalm 114, why are they so full of power that the sea is running away from them? Why? Is it because of themselves? Is that the reason? Because this verse right here tells me they feared greatly and they began to whine before God and complain before God and say, why did you leave me out? Apparently it's not the people. Apparently it's God. It's God's presence with these people that gives them the power that we're talking about. Look at, look at what Moses says to him, verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. God will fight for you, he says. God's presence among his people. I love verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people, people of Israel to go forward. He says, tell these whining people to move forward. Because I'm going before them. I'm with them. Look at verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea. Why do you flee? What ails you, O sea, that you flee? The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters being a wall to them on their right, their right hand and on their left. Imagine that waters like walls on both sides of you, as you walk through on dry land. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, listen, even the Egyptians said, let us free, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Why are these people so powerful? Even the Egyptians can see it because God is among them. It's not them. It's not their complaining, fearful selves. It's because God is in their midst. Look at verse 30. Thus the Lord, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of it, from the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord 
and in his servant Moses. You see the power of God's presence among his people that cause the sea to flee. That causes power as his people go out. And how should you respond to something like that? Look at, verse, look at chapter 15 verse 1. How do you respond? Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Listen to how we should respond. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My father's God. I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And we explode with worship to this God who dwells with his people and gives his people power as they come out. It's because of God that the sea flees. I can't get away from this without reading this one verse here. Verse 8. Chapter 15, verse 8. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up and the flood stood up in a heap. Did you hear the power of God in that? At the blast of your nostrils. Don't do it now. But when you go home, I want you to blow out of your nostrils. As hard as you can. And you try to knock something down. And what you realize is you can't do it. But the Almighty, by the blast of His nostrils, caused the sea to part. And there was a wall on the right and on the left. And His people walked through on dry land. Go to Joshua chapter 1. We're still going to come back to Psalm 114. we go to Joshua chapter 1. Again, don't let familiarity keep you from seeing the glory of God in this. That God's presence among His people. What, what's up with the sea fleeing away from these people? Is it their power? Obviously not. They're full of fearfulness. They're full of complaints. That's these people. But since God is among them, there's power that not only causes the sea to flee, but it causes the Jordan to turn back. Let me prove that. Chapter 1. After the death of Moses. Chapter 1 verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people, and into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. So here it is. God saying, listen, Joshua, leading out the people. I want you to go into this promised land. You're about to go up to this Jordan right now. And listen, listen to verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. So what can we attribute? The Jordan turning back. What can we attribute that to? We can attribute it to, I will be with you. Look at verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong. And courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you. Wherever you go. God's with you wherever you go Joshua. Go to chapter 3. I think we can attribute the power of the people coming out of bondage in Egypt. And the seas fleeing and the Georgia turning back. We can attribute it to the presence of God who promises I'll be with you. Chapter 3 verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning. And they set out from Shatim and they, they came to the Jordan. He and all the people of Israel and they lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days the officers went through the camp and commanded the people. As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest. Then you shall set out from your place and follow. So here's these people. They're dwelling thousands upon thousands of people dwelling before the Jordan. And he says when you see the Ark of the Covenant. That's the sign. That's the symbol of the presence of God among His people. And when you see the presence of God among His people moving toward that Jordan, I want you to get up and I want you to follow it. Verse 4. Yet there should be a distance between you and it about 2,000 cubits in length. So let there be a half, about a half a mile between you and it. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go. For you've not passed this way before. And then Joshua said this to his people. He told them to do this. So they're letting the, the Ark of the Covenant, the sign of the presence of God, go out ahead of them. Verse 8. And as for you, command the priest who bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, imagine the Jordan flowing there. When you come to the brink of those waters, you shall stand in the Jordan. 
And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here's how you know. Here's how you shall know that the living God is among you. And that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Parasites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant, the sign of the presence of God. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the souls of the feet of the priest bearing the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, when they shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Verse 16, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam. I love this. The power of the presence of God among his people caused the Jordan to turn back. A river overflowing all of its banks. They go and put their feet and get their feet wet into the water. And as they move forward in faithful, faith-filled obedience to God, God stops the river in a moment. That's power. That's power. And God's doing that among His people. And what can we attribute it to? Is it the power of these people? Is it their, is it their strength? Their wisdom? Or is it God in His presence? Go back to Psalm 114. Psalm 114. So verse 1 and 2, we've got these people being delivered out of bondage, taken towards the promised land. Verse 3 and 4, a people of power, a people of power are coming out. And verse 5 and 6 is the big question. It's the question that we've really been trying to answer. Look at the big question here. Verse 5. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams. O hills, like, like lambs. So he just said that that's what happened when the people of Israel went out. And now he's asking the question. He's even speaking to creation saying, why are you doing that? Why is this happening? So these are four rhetorical questions here. The psalmist is not asking these questions because he doesn't know the answer. He's asking these questions to highlight the main point. I do this often with my children. I'm, I'm sure many of you do too, right? You ask a question that you really know the answer to. Did Jesus stay in the tomb? And they say, no. He didn't stay in the tomb. What do you mean? He rose from the dead. That's what happened. And so you're trying to highlight a point. You're trying to build up the suspense that they might see the main point. And that's what you see happening right here. What ails you, O see that you flee? He knows the answer. It's the presence of the living God. So what was it that made Israel so powerful? I want you to think about it for a minute. Since we got this question before us, it's meant to highlight that, that idea of why are these people so powerful? Why are these people so full of authority? Why? Was it their strength? These people were backed up against the Red Sea, right? Did they have any strength to do anything about it? No. Was it their wisdom? The, the, these fools had already asked Moses to leave a long time ago. They didn't even want him there. So was it their wisdom? Was it their courage? No, it says they're greatly afraid. Was it their faith in God? No, they're complaining before God. It was none of those things. And what about us as a church? What about the church of Jesus Christ? Ripped out of darkness, taken out of bondage on this wilderness journey toward the promised land, full of these, these words of strength and power for His church that all nations are going to be impacted through her. What makes it so powerful? Is it us? Is it our strength? Our wisdom, our courage, is it our faith, is it our knowledge? What about our covenants and our membership list and our structure and our ecclesiology? Is it any of those things that makes us strong, that makes us powerful? Verse 7 says, tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord. There's your answer. What is it that makes the church of Jesus Christ powerful? It's the presence of God in her midst that makes her powerful. When God is among us, all creation could rise up and would not be able to stop us. 
from what God has called us to be. But when God is not among us, we could, we could have all creation at our backs and on our side and nothing would come through. We would all fall to the ground. The presence, the presence of God. Look at verse 7 and 8. I want, I want to just read it slowly here. Look at verse 7 and 8. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water and flint, the flint into a spring of water. The most important phrase in this whole psalm is this phrase, the presence of the Lord. It's the most important phrase, the presence of the Lord. Now, why does it say the presence of God? Why, why, does, it, why does it verse 7 just say, tremble, O earth, at God? Why does it say the presence of God? I think God's teaching us something here. That word presence right there, it literally means the face of God. It's as if God gets down into our face. Not just we know He exists and we know He controls all things, but He gets down into our face. This is His face, the face of God. This psalm is not just about a people of God that know about Him from afar. This, is, this psalm is about the people of God that have His presence in their midst. It's God comes down, gets in our face, affects our hearts and our emotions, our actions, our everything. Think about the verse before. What ails you, O.C.? That was the question, right? What ails you, O.C., that you flee? And the answer is the presence of God. That God is among them. God is in our face. He's in our midst. What ails you, O Jordan, that you turn back? The presence of God. What ails you, O mountains, that you tremble, that you quake, that you skip like rams? What's going on with that? The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of God. I pray, and I hope you'll pray too, that we would be a church that are marked by the presence of the living God. That we would be a church not just marked by good theology and good ecclesiology and, and membership lists and church covenants. Those things are important. But not that we would just mark, be marked by that, but we'd be marked by the presence of God as among these people. When you think about that chapter 14 in 1 Corinthians, it's the order and structure of the local church. I don't just want the order and the structure that's found in that chapter. I want the power that's found in that chapter. Where lost people show up and they hit their face and they say, Man, God is truly among you. It's verse 25 if you want to go check that out. Let me quickly deal with just a few objections that might be in the air. A few objections that might be in the air. One is this. But Ron, it, isn't God always, everywhere, at all times? And I say, yes, that's called His omnipresence. He is everywhere, always, at all times. No one can hide from His presence. Psalm 139 says, I make my bed in hell and you are there. And it's glorious, but it's not what I'm talking about. Second objection, but, but Ron, but Ron, didn't Jesus promise... I'll be with you always, even to the ends of the age. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So what's all this talk about? God, would you be among us? And, and don't forsake us, God, but be among us. What's that about? Some people call that His covenant His covenant presence, where God says, I'll be with you always, even to the ends of the age. He covenants to be with His people. But listen, that's not what I'm talking about. It's not exactly what I'm talking about. At least it's not all that I'm talking about. What I'm talking about when I say the presence of God, I'm talking about what the Puritans used to call the manifest presence of God. Puritans used to call it the manifest presence of God. I want you to think about it like this. I might tell my son, I might look my son Samuel right now and I say, son, I'll be, here, I'll be here for you always. I'm always here with you, son. And what I obviously don't mean in that moment is that we'll always be in the same room. But I'm always with you, so I'm always there. That's kind of like that covenant presence of God. But when I'm with Him, face to face, in the room, He feels my presence. He feels my love. He feels my protection in those moments. That's like the manifest presence of God. Or think about it like this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, he described what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. He described that, which is this 
this manifest presence of God, he described it like this. He said, a Christian, a Christian, their whole life is like a father who has the hand of a child. And we're like that child. We've got our father's hand and we're walking through this life. We know that he loves us. We know he's got us. He's always got our hand. And every now and then he bends down low and he picks up that child and looks him in the eye and he assures him, man, I love you and I've got you and I protect you. And he embraces them tight, pulls them back out, looks him in the eyes, puts him back down and holds his hand again and keeps walking. That's like the manifest presence of God where not that I didn't know he didn't love me before, but oh, do I know it now? I didn't know about this. I didn't have this courage and boldness before. I might have had some. But man, I'm filled with it now because God has me in His grips, in His grasp. The manifest presence of God is what the psalmists were often crying out about. You remember Psalm 143 verse 7? He says, answer me speedily, O God, my spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, lest I be like a dead man. God, don't hide your face from me. Nobody in that moment would turn to him and say, hey man, he's omnipresent. He's with you always. Don't worry about it. Wouldn't do that. He said, God, don't hide your face from me. Or, or Psalm 13, we say, how long, O oh Lord, how long will you, will, you, will you hide your face from me, God? How long will you hide your presence from me, Lord? This is what James was talking about. James 4, 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What's that all about? God can draw near in moments and pull away in moments. That can happen. According to Scripture, it can. It's what Jesus was talking about. John 14, 21. Remember he said this in John 14, 21. He says, he said, he who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and I'll manifest myself to him. I will manifest. I'll reveal myself to him. Manifest presence of God. Grace Community Church. Let me say something to you quickly. I'm thankful that lately God has led us to dig in to the details of the construction of that temple, which is called the church. I'm so thankful for that. And I think it's very, very important. But if we do not pursue together the presence of the living God to fill that place, it'll all be for naught. Would just be a dead building with good structure. Now, some people might say this, and say, Matt, that feels so far away to me. So, somebody here, maybe quite a few of us are saying, Man, you're talking about the presence of God and, and, and the manifest presence of God, the felt presence of God in my life, and you're talking about that, and that seems so far away from me right now. And I just want to encourage you in something. I want to encourage you in this. Look at Psalm 114, verse 8. The presence of what God? The presence of what kind of God? Who turns the rock into a pool of water. The flint into a spring of water. I want you to be encouraged by that. He said, man, I seem hard. I seem cold. That, that seeking the manifest presence of God seems so far away from me. Listen, we're talking about the God that in a moment took a dry rock and turned it into springs of water. In a moment. The dryness of that rock becomes nourishment for the souls of so many people. In a moment, our God can do that. Do you believe that? I want to encourage you to trust Him. I've got three quick applications here. You see at the bottom of your sheet, three applications here. I want to plead with you. I'm just going to say these things quickly. And I want to plead with you. As you think about the desire in your own soul, the desire for us as a church to be a people of the presence of God. I want to plead with you to take these applications home and get by yourself in a quiet place, Bible open, and you cry out to the living God. What should you do with this? Number one is this, application number one. A longing for His presence. I want to push us and encourage us to move toward a longing a fervent longing for the presence of God. Where are you at with that right now? You can read about this in Exodus 33, where you got the people of God who are about to be taken into the promised land. Okay, they're getting close. And God says to Moses and these people, He says, listen, listen, you can have the promised land, you can have it. 
In fact, I'll send my angel and I'll give you protection in that promised land. And not only that, I'll give you provision. It'll be a place filled with milk and honey, but my presence will not go with you. You, you can have my promise. You can have my protection. You can have my provision. But my presence is not going with you. I'm not going. You know how they responded to that? They said, and when this disastrous word came, they mourned. They mourned. What about us? Would we mourn at that? God said, I give you all my gifts and all my stuff and all this structure. I give you all of that. But I'm not going. How would you respond to that? And maybe you would never say, maybe you would never say, yeah, yeah, you know, if his presence doesn't go, I don't want to go. Maybe you would never say, I want to go anyways. But isn't that how we live? Isn't that, isn't that how it is? Then we say, yes, I want to come to him because I have forgiveness of sins and I want heaven and eternal life, forgiveness of sins, righteousness. I want all those things. But to seek the living God and to know him, how quickly it fades. Moses hears this word. And he begins to cry out, God, God, if your presence does not go with us, God, do not bring us up from here. If it's not your presence, God, we don't want the promise, the provision. We don't want any of it. If it's not your presence, God, any long for the presence of God. And then God answers him in Exodus 33 and says, yes, I'm answering your prayer. I'll go with you. You know what Moses does next? God, show me your glory. This is the one that goes into the tent of meeting and the cloud comes down so much so that all the other people gather around and begin to worship God because he's meeting face to face with Moses. And that man says, it's not enough. I want more of God, more of God. God, show me your glory. You see this longing for the presence of God? And I want to encourage all of us toward that. And let me add one more little piece to that. Not just you personally, but what about you longing for our church, Grace Community Church, to have the presence of God in our midst? I want you to think about Exodus 33. Just think about that chapter. When you go back and read it later, listen. Two verses before that in Exodus 32, the people sin against God and Moses says something like this to God. He says, God, if you don't forgive these people, blot me out of your book. What kind of phrase is that? If you don't, God, these people, these people that are yours, if you don't forgive them, God, bought me out of this book. Do you see the heart of Moses for these people? And then when he begins to plead with God that his presence would go with them, you hear him saying things like, that I, God, and your people might be a distinct people, different from all the peoples on, the pla on planet Earth. He's crying out to God that his presence would be with the people of God. That's biblical. It's not just your just American individualism. It's all about you. But what about us crying out to the living God? If you're not already do it, but doing this, begin to do it. Cry out to God that His presence would be with His people. How do you pray for your church? Pray that the presence of God would be among us. Second application here. You go back and look at that one, please. Second application, God's presence in corporate worship. As we come together like this in corporate worship and we begin to sing praises to our God, we begin to worship God, hear the word of God, preach, take the Lord's Supper together. I'm talking about the presence of God in corporate worship. Now, here's some scriptures that I'm thinking about just to name a few. First Chronicles chapter five, verse 11 through 14. The people gather together corporately. The glory of God fills the temple. Nehemiah chapter 8, the people gather together. They're hearing the word of God read for a fourth of the day. And all of a sudden, people begin to lift their hands and say, Amen. And they hit their face. Praise to the living God. Hallelujah. God moves among His gathered people. You look in the book of Acts over and over again, you see things like that. The people are gathered together in corporate worship and the Spirit of God comes. The people are gathered together in corporate worship and the building begins to shake. You see God show up in these places. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4. Listen. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, like we are right now. It says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the power of our Lord Jesus. Is that how you describe what you're going after when you come to a meeting like this? You come to a corporate gathering of the church of Jesus Christ. God, as we assemble together with your power in our midst. So much so that a few chapters later, as we spoke of a minute ago, 1 Corinthians 14, even the lost people are bowing down saying, man, God is among y'all. God is in this place. 
It's a powerful thing when the people of God gather together, not just to go through their Sunday rituals and Sunday duties, but to meet with God. Is that how you think about this corporate gathering? That we come together to meet with the living God. I want each one of you to hate, despise, just like Hunter prayed for a minute ago, to despise the thought that we get together to sing songs just to do a little sing-along together. But rather that we sing praises to our God in expectancy that God's power would come and that He would show Himself and He'd move in our hearts as we sing to the living God in His presence before His throne. I want you to despise the thought of just listening to sermons without something in your heart that says, I want to hear from God. I want to hear something from His Word. I want you to despise the thought of just listening to people pray. But every time prayer goes down, as we gather together, you hit your face and your heart bows down with your head and you begin to cry out to the living God along with the person leading you in prayer. I want you to think that way. That we don't just come here just to do our Sunday ritual. Listen, if you came here this morning, And there was not something in your aim, even the major part of your aim. If it wasn't, I'm going to meet with the people of God, that we we might meet with the living God, that we might experience His presence. If that's not why you came here today, repent. And I've done it too. Let's repent together in the way we gather corporately. And third application would be this, prayer and fasting. A people marked by the presence of God or a people marked by prayer and fasting. A people marked by the presence of God or a people marked by prayer and fasting. So, Grace Community Church, where, think about it for a minute. When you think about a people, when you think about us longing for the presence of God, where does that most clearly show itself? And I think it's in prayer and fasting. Matthew 6, 6, you, when you pray, go into that secret place and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. You Matt, you don't do that unless you long for God. You go into that secret place or fasting. Matthew 9, 15. He mentions we fast because the bridegroom is gone. But we want Him here. We want Christ to be here. Prayer and fasting. I, I've said a lot over the last few weeks that we want to be like that church in Acts. In Acts 2 and Acts 4. We want to be like that church. Listen, we will not be like that church if God does not come. And, and that is linked to. Therefore, we must Pray to the living God. We must cry out to God. You go through the book of Acts and you're looking at that church in Jerusalem we talked about last week. You just look at it. You can hardly find a section where they're not on their face crying out to God together. You can barely find them. They're praying to God. So how is your prayer life? How's your prayer life? And if you're, if you feel like, man, I get convicted of this every now and then. And, and I just keep putting it off and pushing it off and putting it off and pushing it off. Listen, I want to invite you into something deeper. Something deeper with God. A life of prayer and fasting where you are in pursuit of the presence of the living God. And you know what your reward is? You get God. You get Him. Please go back and look at those. Let's pray together now. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for instruction from your word, God. Thank you for warnings and rebukes and encouragements and revelation of you, God, and revelation of ourselves, Lord. Thank you for all of these things. God, please search us. Search us and know our hearts. See any evil way in us and lead us in the way everlasting, God. God, I pray that you'd purge out the sin that moves us away from you, God, wanting you, longing for you. God, make us a people of your presence. God, I pray that you would come, even as we sing this next song. God, even as we go throughout our lives together, in our homes and everywhere, God, make us a people of your presence. Come, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, come. God, we read about how you were were there. You were among your people. And we see it in your word. We see it. You're among your Old Testament people. You're among your people in the book of Acts. We see that, God. And we want that, Lord. We want you. 
God, we don't want just your blessings, your rewards, your gifts, God. We want you. We want the giver, God. So please come. God, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray in this way. Teach us to pray for your presence, God. God, I pray that for so many of us, Lord, that have been convicted of these things again and again, and maybe have not acted on them, God, help us. Help each one of us, God. God, I pray that you would give us repentance, God. You give us a change of heart, Lord. And you would turn us to be a people of prayer and fasting because we're a people that pursue you, God, in your presence. God, please help us, Lord. God, I praise you that we can ask these prayers in such confidence that you, God, have made us your sanctuary. You've made us your dwelling place. God, you pick us up and carry us to the end. You promise. You promised, God, that the work that you began in us, you would complete it to the very end. So this is what we're asking, God, that you would just do your work, complete your work in our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.